Dr. Kuntz, what is a vaccine? It depends on whether it's dealing with something that can mutate rapidly or has kind of a single target. So um, you're, you're talking about something different when you're dealing with a flu than with, say, like smallpox. But it is an inoculation producing some kind of reaction to illness that will hopefully prevent you from contracting that illness in a, in a big way later down the line in a debilitating way. So it's, it's sort of the Mithridates principle where this ancient king took a little bit of poison at a time and increased the dosage over time so that he would be immune to assassination. I've been building up an immunity to Iocane powder for quite some time. The, uh, <laughs> if you get the reference, the, so what you're saying is that a vaccine as a word, the word vaccine is not really a scientific term. It's not a term for designating a particular type of injection into your body. It's more just the idea of an inoculation, correct? Yeah, and it's related to the Latin word for cow because it was tested on cattle when the concept at least was developed in the 18th century in Europe and from there spread out. But there's always been, to one degree or another, controversy about the notion of inoculating human populations and whether you were actually going to hurt people by doing it. And so, and there was, there was resistance to the idea altogether. And what's interesting to me is that when people think about public health, I think they sort of mash together a lot of different factors, some of which matter a lot more than others. So I think they mash together like the amount of prescription medicines they're required to take by their physician with the fact that we have clean water. And I think if you're just talking about managing large urbanized populations, plumbing is a lot more important than pharmaceuticals as a sort of base level measure for public health. Yeah, especially when you're flushing the pharmaceuticals down the toilet and they end up then in the plumbing, <laughs> come back through the waters, you got all that Tylenol and all that estrogen from the birth control yeah. pills uh, going right. into everybody's drink unless they're you know able to buy the right. bottle of water, which still has the estrogen in it. Guys, get off the bottle of water if it's plastic. Hey, Culligan, man, I'll just say that too. That was a lot of great stuff. Okay, so what's the first vaccine then? When that first was going on, this this initial controversy, I think vaccines have a resistance controversy surrounding them all the way up the history chain, no matter how normalized right. they might have become. But what right. was that first vaccine? If I remember correctly, I believe it was Edward Jenner's vaccination against smallpox off the top of my head. And do you know this was before abortifacient stem cell lines being used for vaccine potentials. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, this yes. is why it matters yeah. to me, oh, man. Yeah. yeah, no, it was, we're talking, uh, we're talking 18th century. And so, so. what's, what's the science? I mean, as much as you know, cause this is what is going to be important is the science behind the idea of a vaccine is going to change significantly over time. And the leap that we are making right now with COVID vaccines is yet another significant scientific jump. Um, we're going to talk about passports today as well and soft power and all that. But for my part, I mean, I want to know what they're telling people to take. And I think it's important for people to understand it's just, it's not all under one category like you think it is. They're not all coming from the same kind of test tube. It's not how it works. Right. Correct. And some of them have definite targets, right? So it's easier if I know what I'm going to be dealing with to inoculate you with that in a small way so that your body learns how to fight it. Right. But if I'm dealing with like a kind of a, a seasonal illness, like flu shots or coronavirus shots, then, you know, I'm, I'm aiming at something, but then 
something to understand here economically is that something like a flu shot or a coronavirus shot is going to be more lucrative in the long term because you can sell boosters and variants and stuff like that. Whereas if you're inoculated against smallpox and you know your body accepts it well, you're not going to get smallpox. <laughs> because smallpox is not a is not a seasonal mutation. So some of this has to do with going from a disease that is a singular virus, or I, I'm not I'm not familiar enough with smallpox to even know. Um, but it's it doesn't mutate; it stays the same. Polio, I would imagine, is maybe in that in that game park or ballpark as well. And then you're dealing with seasonal mutations, variation of the species, all that kind of stuff going on, so that your COVID style coronaviruses, where there's so many versions of them, and every year they're they're adapting. And then if you're in this game plan to make money on this thing, that is going to be more lucrative because now you got a new one every year. Okay, so we can we can pull back from that. That's a lot of my own nonsense seeking for the science. I still want to know what a vaccine really is. Uh, seeking immunity through inoculation, that sounds like a, a good working definition. But inoculation of what? You know, baby parts, cow parts, you know, uh, alien dream works? I don't know. But the New York State Excelsior does sound like yeah. something DreamWorks might make as a movie. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> well, I think that probably a pl- let, let's start outside that question be, of of what that's going to do because the problem with the discussion of vaccine passports is that you never get to get outside at all, even for a second. The paradigm that the way to health is through the administration of approved medicines, right? So the definition of health is always dependent on expensive and or complex, but certainly administered and administrated things, vaccines, visits, medicines, pharmaceuticals of various kinds, things for which you have to go to school for years to become part of that mediating a set of agencies, doctors, nurses, all that rather than health being as a sort of basic thing that we're taught involving exercise and food and exposure to sunlight and sort of basic things that people are going to be doing anyway. They're going to be eating. They're going to be sitting or standing somewhere. They're going to be moving or not moving. So we don't really teach those preferences. So I think within all of that, you can one of the first things you can tell before talking about specific vaccine passports, is that if there were sincere concern for public health, the measures taken and the discussion surrounding it would be much more inclusive than the discussion of whether or not you have received certain vaccines, right? So, you know, we've brought up obesity before, but there are a lot more elements to this, right? Like is driving all the time or sitting all the time and, you know, you have to sit so you can drive things like that. We don't, I mean, we just don't talk about that. We don't talk about what aspects of modern life are fundamentally destructive for the human spirit and the human body. And so in not doing that, but you're going to require me, New York State has an app, which I'll explain in a second, in order to get into this or that, basically to live, okay, to exercise the uh, basic in the United States constitutional right to move about the country of the United States freely in order to do that, I have to have this measure of health, while all these other more basic, much cheaper measures of health are never discussed, never, ever, ever. So, and part of the irony, historical irony of this is that our current president is very obviously mentally unwell. 
Is he, of course, been, you can fill me in on this. I've not been watching. Is he still? He was when he won. So I figured it's just kind of the same bumbling. Is it? Is it? Is it regressing? I don't know. I mean, uh, I mean, I how can I me- how can I measure that? But I, he he stumbles. He stumbles constantly. He says very strange things. You know. I mean, the the display of physical, obvious public lack of health especially just cognitive functioning yeah, yeah. is obvious. And it, and it, it, it is very much reminiscent of the Soviet union in the 1980s and a lot of Warsaw Pact countries in the 1980s that were governed by people that were publicly and in a very decline, obviously declining way geriatric. So I think that part of the discussion of health is I don't honestly think it's disingenuous. I think that part of our regime's way of existing is both to very narrowly limit debate. You're just, there's an enormous range of things you're not allowed to say and are never brought up. But I don't think they're disingenuous in that. I think they themselves have a very limited range of reactions and capacities. And I saw this, you know, when there was this summit between China and the US that was held in Alaska. And we had, I mean, the People on Twitter paid attention to the fact that next to the Secretary of State was some woman with like purple hair. Like that's who we're putting out here. But the Chinese knew how to push a certain number of buttons. So they just said that the US was racist. (laughs) And the Secretary of State had no comeback. He wasn't prepared, you know. So they don't seem to be bright people capable of thinking on their feet in this regard. But so the debate is limited to their definition of health, and that has turned into vaccine passports. And New York State, whose motto is on their license plate as Excelsior, which means for a state, everyone is trying to flee. None better. That's what that means. The Excelsior Pass is an app that allows a sort of sync between your health data and public records so that you can get into things in New York State, if you are a resident of New York State, to things like concerts and public events and things like that. Um, it is a sort of internalized vaccine passport. So not so much a passport to get out of New York to go to, I don't know, New Jersey, but to go to things inside New York. It's going to resemble other passports we're going to talk about today, but it is currently unique in the United States in being an official government vaccine passport. Not, of course, required and that's the nature of soft power, not required, but really, really helpful for navigating daily life. Uh, talk about soft power and hard power real quick, just as a, it's kind of a reminder. We've done it before and we'll probably circle back to it, but quickly. Yeah, soft power is the opposite of what we traditionally think of states as doing. So if traditionally a state is defined by the use of violence when necessary or capacity to mobilize force either internally to keep the peace or externally to make war upon its enemies. Soft power is everything from what you think of as propaganda to social pressure or international pressure. Sanctions might fall, financial sanctions might fall within soft power. So soft power is something like the U.S. sanctioning Russia rather than making war upon Russia or sponsoring one of our sort of propaganda units to attack the communist regime in Cuba through a radio station rather than, you know, the Bay of Pigs invasion in 1962. 
So I'm caught between a couple of ideas. One, which yeah. is bona fide loony, uh, but you've really turned me on to it, which is that somehow accidentally California Hollywoodism spawned and became a demonic oracle that is truly and forthrightly insinuating <laughs> the future of America through mainly 1980s <laughs> movies, Escape from New York mm-hmm. being one of the key ones. Of course, it's expanded yeah. to be unexpected, right? Everything's upside down. You don't get bitty, get a be snake. I get it. But but still, it's, it's there because that's one idea. The other idea is just that incentives run the systems. And so when you're talking about these leaders that are up on top and they can only see so far, they're mm-hmm. dealing with the incentives they have in their daily life from top to bottom, from who they know, from who what fires they got to put out. And that is a very small nut. And then there are, just to scale it quickly, billions of these you know uh, little systems of personal incentive all over the planet and very rarely can we get above the din of our own noise to objectively ask like, huh, maybe there's like a lot more to this health thing than what we've been taught in school the last 30 years and never questioned, right? And and that just doesn't happen because, again, your incentive is to move forward and save today or the moment, uh, finish the crisis that is now. And uh, we could talk about how gaslighting keeps many people in this, but I think you're, you're looking at the leadership. And so the bigger idea here is until someone has a real reason to change anything, they're not going to. They're going to keep pushing in the direction they are. Yeah, which is devolution right now. I think that there there's both a structural aspect to this, and then there's also something probably unique to our regime. But the structural aspect to constant urgency of crisis management, I think, has to do with democratic structures. I don't think democracy, and it's certainly in the ancient world, was not practiced on anything like the scale that hardly any modern nation state practices it. And the reason for that is not only that it's almost impossible to think of democratic accountability or responsibility above sort of a level in which we're all physically visible to each other on a regular basis, like an ancient town meeting or a New England town meeting in early America. So the problem then is that democracies, as not only Plato, but lots of people have figured out, are then peculiarly subject to manipulation by the wealthy. And so the people who are able to get into positions of power within democratic structures that are really too big to accomplish what they're supposed to accomplish are people who are going to be responsive to donor demands, okay? Which is not in itself evil, but it's also not necessarily the best way to govern a nation state where I don't just have to think about, you know, the Q2 report or the next shareholders meeting, or the next, you know, board of trustees or whatever, I need to think about what's going to happen in 50 years, right? And there's a lack of long-term thinking that is endemic to democratic structures. It's why democratic structures, theoretically democratic structures, that people actually care about, so, you know, most publicly traded companies, are not actually in any sense controlled by the shareholders meeting, because they understand that would be destructive, right? It's bad enough that you have to produce all these reports and then speculation goes on with your you know, stock prices on the basis of those reports, which really just reflect what happened in the past 13 weeks. You know, but they're, they're going to make sure that somebody's allowed to make very long-term decisions. Our politicians aren't allowed to do that. And many of them, especially in the House, the federal House, which is supposed to be the most representative, are really in constant campaign mode. And so they can't... <laughs> make these sorts of decisions. So even if our regime office holders were, 
you know, less hostile to the American population than they appear to be by everything they do, they still probably wouldn't really be all that capable of making good long-term decisions for our health or any number of other things. If I was worried about that, uh, I'd be really active trying to tell people what the Constitution really meant and how we should do more of that. But I'm not worried about either of those things. I don't think the second is a way forward at all. I think it's a way to continue in the nostalgia. I'm not worried about it because as you continue to compare us to the Soviet bloc pre-collapse, I can only foresee or hear in that the suggestion that what we're really going to watch happen is not a civil war in America, Mm -hmm. uh, but Mm -hmm. a splintering into the states, wherein you might have blocks of states that agree, but they're largely going to have to do with political power, and you're going to see people moving. You already, I think, do, so that you will have five, seven big block kind of nations within this little empire that we still call the U.S. within the global hegemony of the who knows what the U.N. and blah, blah, 2030. Yeah. Okay. I mean, the, the difficulty, the difficulty with that is that something that we'll talk about next time, but is brought up by the nature of vaccine passports is that blue states are not all the same shade of blue and red states are not all the same shade of red. And it's not just cultural. So let me give you like a concrete example, right? You have some states in which there are cultural differences that are kind of obvious. So Arkansas, their assembly, a state assembly, overrode their governor's veto of a ban on puberty blockers for children. Okay. North Dakota couldn't accomplish the same thing. Okay. Despite both states being really pretty red and North Dakota redder historically than, than Arkansas. Understanding that Arkansas was a southern, it was a Dixiecrat state and it flipped, but you know, it's still not quite as red as North Dakota, even as red as it is now. So what's, what are some of the differences here? One of the differences is that not all red states are equally beholden to certain forms of business. This is where our government's ostensibly democratic structure really comes to matter. Because, for instance, the state I live in, Indiana, is extremely beholden to business. That's sort of, I mean, Indiana doesn't have a sort of like rebellious ethos in the population or in the political history. It has been extremely cooperative with the national government in every war we've ever been engaged in since it became a state. So there's no sense of pushback. And uh, so even when we got rid of our mask mandate, that wasn't, that's not actually there. It's still mandated in schools and all public buildings. And the governor still appears in public wearing a mask as a sort of exercise in political theater, right? So one of the things that we're dealing with is that we have a beholdenness to money and to corporate donation, and also to money that is made not necessarily in corporate America, but through finance, uh, so private equity, family offices. And that varies state by state by state. But that is a unifying factor across all 50 states that didn't exist in the Soviet Union. So even if I see parallels in the number of geriatrics, parallels in the amount of potential splintering geographically, in the United States, racially, uh, in the Soviet Union, ethnically and geographically. We still have a common attachment to mammon that did not exist in the Soviet Union to the same degree 
they had oligarchs come in and sort of loot the country once the breakup had occurred. But I think the breakup was easier to have occur once it started precisely because there was relatively little at stake, right? Because economically, you're talking about a bunch of West Virginia's and Arkansas's breaking up. Whereas in the United States, <laughs> even Arkansas is the headquarters of Walmart. So I guess that could move, right? But there's only so many Arkansas's, Mississippi's, and West Virginia's. The rest of the country, there's still a lot to fight over economically, right? So I see that as, that, that is why I think vaccine passports are going to take the form that they are in the United States. And I'll talk about that whenever you're, whenever you're, you know, you want to, but I think it's also what makes breakup so difficult because there's so much at stake, right? It's easy to say, okay, we're done. This, you know, this poker game is over. If everybody bid $5 and some guy won 25 and nobody cares and you want to go drink some beers, right? But if there's like millions of dollars at stake on the table, people are more reluctant to fold. Ask. It's, it's like there's wheels within wheels in the layering of the fragmentation. So mm -hmm. the city-state reality will exist so far as the authority of the city-state's voice as a prophetic spirit in the age can say. So New York says, here's what we say. And as far as that right. voice and power goes, that city-state reigns. So it's less yeah. about the sword's power, kind of yay Athens of old, and more about who the oracle is and how many people will believe that oracle, uh, what tools are used by that oracle in order to ensure compliance with the religion. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, that then is able to integrate within the same region. So, you know, a good pagan can wallow through 15 different religions in an afternoon and maybe put a mask on for five of them. You know, I mean, who knows? And depends on how that goes. So, I mean, that's a lot of metaphor, but putting these into religious terms helps me on the one hand. And, uh, and on the other hand is, is to see that, uh, well, I don't know what it is to see. I'm gonna let you take it from there. Ha. Yeah. I, I, I think that what you're going to be looking at is, kind of foretold by how the Biden administration has has chosen to handle the concept of vaccine passports because it's it's obviously useful, right? And it ensures a degree of compliance that is otherwise difficult to ensure nationally in the United States, both because of the immense scope and diversity of the United States in every sense of that word, that latter word, but also because the United States, unlike a lot of countries in, let's say, the, you know, the uh, daughters of Great Britain, uh, including the mother country itself, the United States is still an armed nation. Okay, and I don't really, <laughs> I, 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 I do think they think about that. Right? Really, uh, I th man, that I just... when that that when you want to enforce something in Canada or Australia, you disarmed large numbers of them twenty years ago at least. Yeah. And so, you know, you can you can get away with that in, you know, downstate New York. You can get away with that probably in, you know, large parts of California. You can get away with that in Western Oregon, maybe, but not Eastern Oregon. So the United States is a place where some amount of resistance is still possible. I'm not even saying it's likely. I'm simply okay. saying it's possible. And if the regime has difficulty exercising any form of hard power, okay, so give you another example here, what happened on January 6th, you know, they could have just cracked down and dispersed people, okay? But they did let a certain number of irreparably dumb things happen, like the guy that put his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk. And if you look into what has happened to those people in custody, 
they are being harmed and abused, right? Uh, even without a trial. Hmm. Okay. So their constitutional rights are being violated. That's not really the point. What the regime likes to do with everyone from terrorists uh, or, you know, mass shooters who always turn out to have prior contact <laughs> with one or more federal agencies down to the January 6th people, down to, you know, mass compliance, they want you to get yourself into it to some degree. Then you will be punished. They don't want you to opt out or to have nothing to do with them. They want you to get somewhat upset and to be drug into something, and then you can't get out, and by that time, you're clearly committing some sort of felony, right? But they don't like to just attack people. Not yet, at least, and I'm not sure that they have the capacity to ever, and that has to do with my estimation of where the military is going and, and, right, and stuff right. like that. But by it's, attack people, you're talking about in horde as opposed to, say, private target and selective removal of political enemies and, and things like that, about which we're probably pretty good at, I would imagine, at this point. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they do not, they, they, they may not be so dumb that, you know, by analogy, they're going to start a land war with Russia. Mm -hmm. But they will sanction Russia forever and ever and ever and ever for vague or trumped up offenses. So they they love soft power. And that is why I don't think the Biden administration is trying to have any kind of federally approved or mandated or both vaccine passport, mm -hmm. because they know it would just be so difficult to do it that way, and they have a better way of doing it. I was getting at before about layers of power then, I think still is here in the conversation, mm -hmm. that you as an individual are going to move through different levels of expectation about what health is, about what cleanliness is, about what America is, uh, all in a day's uh, engagement with people around you. And yeah. this is, to some extent, invisible. Uh, but you can learn yeah, to see right. it. You can learn to right. see it. You can look for the brands and the symbols that'll tell you who people are because everyone's telling you who they are just about all the time. So you can learn to see it. And then what you're pointing out then again is that it is possible that there is enough of a a loop tied through various incentivized bureaucratic moves to control uh, that certain population groups find themselves inevitably pulled into uh, being the enemy of the state, right? This is kind of part of our conversation mm -hmm. from the beginning, too. It's like, you know, our show is, how do you avoid becoming the enemy of the state if you're a white man in America? You know, what's your goal here? Um, how do you do this? The vaccine passport then becomes one of those major places where you're seeing a dividing line between two groups within the society, and if you choose to stay outside of one group, there's a chance that you're really, really outside 30 years from now, and your kids mm -hmm. are really 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 outside 30 years from now and this is the moment for that decision and uh so that's where uh, you know i don't know i think i'm still on the page of my chips are falling without this thing either way even if it means we can't go certain places you know in new york if i can't go to walmart in 30 years because you know you, you can't get in without new york's passport or whatever well then i guess that's why we're trying to figure out how to do some sustainable farming with my, with my family right trying, yeah. trying to find yeah. al alternate ways but i mean it, it is a pivotal moment and and yet it is a slow apocalypse, and uh, and the vaccine passport concept is just so at the heart of it. So I don't know. I, that was sort of a summary, um, sort of not. Uh, we've covered – well, so it, maybe it's a good segue to like passport normalization though too, right? So they're not necessarily expecting this all to work right away. Yeah. No, no, they're not. And, and perhaps they're even – I don't know. 
I mean, based on everything I said like 10 minutes ago, this sounds stupid, but maybe they're even cognizant that they couldn't do it well, right? Look at how Obamacare health exchanges failed to roll out well. So maybe they know that many, many, many government jobs are essentially what you think of as the DMV, and therefore the workforce is incapable of doing this well. So it's both more efficient, but also a softer use of power to provide federal guidelines to companies Hmm. for vaccine passports, okay, which is in fact, you know, in the works is happening. That's what they've, that's what they've promised. And they're still saying that either you can have proof of vaccination or advisedly a negative COVID test, but either way, you have to enter into this universe in which your capacity to be somewhere it hinges on your relationship to, you know, novel coronavirus 19. Well, it hinges on so, your willingness to let the government inject you with something or shove something painful up your nose regularly. I mean, to me, that was not more than America's promise. I'm sorry. So it's like this is this is so far removed from Americana as to be the wake up call to say, what the heck? Right. And then but your point then that what the heck is the takeover of civilization through corporation and that the hegemony that is the elected elite see this happening and are trying to be in that bed. Um, yeah. And they may yeah. be able to do that for a generation. I I, I think, again, yeah. I'm, I'm a Blade Runner futurist here. At <laughs> uh, Jack's going to be living in cyborg world way up on the tower of the of the pyramid uh, while Nancy's down getting, you know, her head chopped off by the bourgeois. Uh, <laughs> so um, how do you resist soft power? Let's let's shift it to something serious there. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that one thing to think about is to begin to think about if America's a casino, you have to ask yourself, who is the house? And I don't think it's like the government per se, because the walls between the government, especially the national government, and things like corporations, professional sports, entertainment are very porous, right? And you can tell that when they really want to sell something like, stay home in March of 2020, they'll get lots of different people, Hollywood, sports, government, to sing, you know, a John Lennon song and then release a composite video, right, of them all singing Imagine. So when they want something done, the different sort of levers can be pulled at the same time to accomplish something. That that sort of collectively is the house. Now, you will always lose when you're gambling when you're betting against the house. So I think that one thing to begin to think of is that the form of gambling at which you can actually make a profit long-term, right, long-term, is paramutual betting, where you're betting against the knowledge of the other, you know, bettors, right? And so if you begin to think of our various regime office holders and aficionados, that is also those people who have no power, but think that they they've chosen like, you know, team globalist American empire as their team. If you think about that, then you realize that they have limitations. There are a lot of narratives I see inside the church, outside the church that are really stories of complete despair. And I think that probably the most basic reason that this podcast is about the kind of things that it's about is that if you have enough historical sense you realize that nothing lasts forever. And so there are always more chinks in the armor when you look back 20 years after something than the people at the time saw. 
So if we see anything, we'll see more in the future. So it, there is hope. And there's hope precisely in the fact that I'm not betting against the house. That is, I'm not accepting the house's terms, right? I'm not saying, okay, I'm going to go in here and I'm going to play blackjack. And I'm going to be here, you know, every day, several months. Because at that point, the best thing that you can do is try to game like the system that the house has set up, maybe in some other way. So you're not really fighting them over, I'm going to win at this or that, you know, blackjack game, but I'm going to get enough comps. And comps in a casino are really the equivalent of benefiting from this regime. So, you know, you're a black woman. Well, you're lucky, you know, you're going to benefit from this regime more than I am. But you're only going to benefit so much because other things about this regime are are soul destroying for everybody. So if you don't want to just get comped, right? So your your ideal of life is not just for the house to sometimes give you a free dinner so you can go back and lose more money after dinner. Then you have to start thinking about, okay, well, what kind of games can I play that involve betting against the house in a common game rather than against the house as kind of the people that control all the chips because they don't, they don't know more about 2025 than you or I do really. Honestly, they don't have the omnipotence or the monopoly on information or righteousness or truth that they purport to have. So when you're thinking about that, you think, okay, If the house is also composed of corporate America, then maybe long-term, one of the things that I want to do, or if it's too late for me, I want my children to do, is to make a way of life that is not dependent on corporate America, or to forge a way of life that is not dependent on regime approval of my thoughts, right? Prior approval, present approval, ongoing approval, whatever it is that's required, maybe I want to live a life where I don't have to live that way. So this is where creativity is required. And there's going to be attrition because I don't think most human beings are actually designed to go into some kind of (laughs) betting pool with the house, right? I think human beings are set up to live inside relatively stable systems. And so it's really, really, really hard for people to think outside the terms of these are the games that the house offers, like which one do I want to play? But yeah, it's hard to think outside the box of it but when the stakes are as high as they are, if you have any hint that the box of slavery is closing around your grandchildren, yeah. then you, you ought seriously to spend some time on it. Even if it's like, oh, that's hard to think about. I don't want to. No, no. Now is the time, man. Now is the day. Put on the thinking cap. Spend some time. Um, and and that, that reminds me of another note from way back, which we won't go chase entirely. But I know we we're t- talking about public concern and you know how you know. If COVID were not a con, you would have heard more about keto by now from everybody because uh, lowering your glucose level is is key to the entire survival experience from we know when this works against people with diabetes and whatnot. And you know, that, that health and being outside, losing weight, that these things have not become front news things daily from the American media and from the, uh, the national government uh, show you how this is all a con. If they were serious about this, that stuff would be everywhere all the time. Um, so anyway, that, that was not really uh, the 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 gist I wanted you to riff back on. But you know, you're talking about betting against the game itself in one sense. Um, yeah. I mean, we're, you can't leave the house, but no, you're, you're kind of saying just that. You're saying pick up your chips and just go play a different game. Maybe, maybe don't go play a game at all. You know, how do you build your own casino? I mean, you're not going to build your own corporate America tomorrow. 
No, no, <laughs> but, no, but no. It doesn't and mean it doesn't mean you cannot build your own economy. Economy. I think I think what I'm what I'm saying is that life is always speculative. Like oh, life too, involves yeah. life involves significantly more risk than most of us were raised to believe. We were raised to occupy a certain set of you know uh, functions within a system that it, because it's now breaking down people listen to things like this podcast, right? This podcast is not a, a 2002 podcast, right? O only, but it's uh, only if you're a king of the next era. I mean, that's all we got listening. <laughs> that's probably true. So when, when you realize that you're not, you, that that system is not rewarding you, does not incentivize you, maybe even hates you and your children and your God, then at that point, you are ready to realize that life is a speculative endeavor, right? It's, it's not a set of guaranteed outcomes. And it, and it never was. It, it never was. But there were certain economic factors, especially in the past 50 years, that enabled Americans, not Europeans, right, because their continent was devastated twice by war, but enabled many Americans to believe that there were guaranteed good outcomes without any significant risk while living the kind of life you were told you should live. Yeah, social Security, yeah. right? I mean, right. That, that's, security. That's it's not just a defunct system. It was a sales pitch and a term and a branded idea that really meant ultimately a religious promise, right? I mean, what what is what are the Greeks dealing with? A world of chaos in which they seek order, right? And Agamemnon cries, you know, a bloody murder, and, and, and they they they, <laughs> they cannot achieve the uh, the overcoming of Troy because of their arrogance against each other. All of this, uh, again, truth coming through the suffering, truth coming through conflict, risk being something that shows you something's wrong with the world, and along comes now. You know, it's claiming to be the inheritors of Greek society, this little pocket age that, that says you know, there, we need no heroes, we need no, we need no, no tragedies, right? Stop right. crying, and go to work, and and I think you know my 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 telling of the Greek tales there, uh, not maybe being the most epic it could be, uh, we live at a time that is so religiously unbelievably impossible that the blowback on this thing has me disturbed. It does have me disturbed, Adam. I mean, uh, we're so far off base of reality. How long yeah. can this uh, scaffolding stand? Yeah, there's a guy whom I'm reading. I'm writing an essay for the uh, Christian Culture magazine that's going to be uh, coming out in connection with Luther Classical College, which is a project that some folks in Missouri Synod congregations have for a Lutheran college not dependent on federal money, um, which Ooh. would be awesome to see. And uh, the, the guy's name is von Prinsterer. He was Dutch. And the Dutch went through a revolution in imitation of the French. And it was as radical as the French Revolution got. And one of the things that Prinsterer sees about the reaction to the reign of terror, right? So I don't think we're at the reign of terror. We have people calling for the extermination of whites, like outside restaurants in New York City, but we're not at the point where that's you know happening systematically or something. But right after the reign of terror, the reaction sets in. And the, the instability that von Prinsterer sees is that without some sort of principle, okay, if you're still living within the ideological constraints of the revolution, so you're just saying, you know, this went too far, or we need to go back to this or something, you're still within the framework that this is, you know, how government's supposed to work. 
nothing outside the revolution is possible really finally, then the reaction will be in its own way far worse than any abuses from the regime that came before the revolution. Because at this point, there is nothing fatherly about the regime as there was under the monarchy that came before the revolution. Now it will simply be, uh, instead of the people killing you, it will be the dictator killing you. So the, the, the sort of dark vision possibly ahead of at least parts of the United States is that the reaction will end certain kinds of abuses that currently occur. Maybe the cities will be more orderly than they are right now. Maybe you know fewer people will be killed in Chicago, but that what will happen will not actually get us out of the political crisis of legitimacy that I think we know we're all living through and partly explains the regime's reluctance. Our regime is not the French. Um, I don't think they have the determination. And I think the reason that they use soft power is because they know that they do not have things like numbers on their side. What they have on their side is a monopoly over the channels of information. And because they have that, they are much more easily able to change people's minds so that they don't put up resistance than they you know, have to, you know, actually send troops to enforce something. Hmm. Legitimacy. We, the people, hold these truths to be self-evident or something. Trying to justify a war against a king. How's it looking right now, right? I mean, I don't want to just make this the monarchist episode because it's not, but uh, there really is something there that conscientiously now where is the soul of this place that said we don't need kings? And, and what does that do to any attempt to, to live within the, the system as construed? If it, in fact, is an impossible reality, which your, your, your hypothesis, I think, is democracy is an impossible reality. Like you cannot have a democracy function that will self-destruct. Well, then, you know, it is we do have to bet against the game on a high level now. And this does mean things like personal responsibility. It does mean things like recognizing your home's a castle, whether or not the government says it is. It does mean things like, what, procreation is the, the future of the species. It means uh, taking ownership of, of everything. Again, I don't know if that's exactly where you want to go, but legitimacy, I mean, that's, a, that's no small term to just kind of throw out there and leave behind. I think that democracy is possible, but it, it's on a small scale. Right, and right, yeah. America was simply not actually intended. America... Let, let's let's speak functionally rather than um, legalistically. America never had a king. Nobody's life was in any real practical way, not even in Virginia, which was the most royalist and Anglican and actually had living nobility living in Virginia. Not even Virginia was governed by the king. And the resolution hmm. to that was to have 13 different republics come together for certain common purposes. That's long gone, and we've talked about that on the Discord. I don't think that America is the nation that was founded in 1776. It's on the same continent, but it is not the same polity. And the experiment that we're currently going through is to have an executive, but not a king, with increasing amounts of power. Um, at this point, <laughs> with this administration, certainly, um, that executive is just a figurehead. And so power also abhors a vacuum just like nature. And therefore, all kinds of powers are sweeping in. And I will not be shocked to see, you know, the FBI and the CIA fighting somewhat publicly once again, like they did before Trump. 
with, uh, you know, former, quote, former CIA agents publishing books about how badly the FBI handled things like 9-11, right? So we'll see that. We'll see strife over power. And the, the, the means of resistance to that is not merely personal. It is also on a group level. And the strength of even a monarchy are also the relatively democratic, patriarchal, but relatively democratic things like village councils. So if you don't know how to get along with people or you can't work together with other men, you will also have great difficulties because those are the sorts of things that even in an absolute monarchy govern in a practical way people's daily lives. We are the nation that, that, be, that began. Yeah. Bro- go ahead. Go ahead. And the, and, and the house didn't set that up. I mean, the house trains you to be a, to be, to consume wealth, not to build or to invest or to learn brotherhood. I mean, it's just, it's, it's certainly not in their interest and it's not any of the table games they offer. So we are the nation that began broadcasting in the 1940s. Would you agree with that? That's the epoch. I think that I, I do think that Hollywood is pivotal and I would like to do history of Hollywood sometime. Um, I want to talk about red versus redder versus reddest states next time. But talking about the history of Hollywood is important sometime. Even before Hollywood, however, you have a nation. I mean, it's probably most helpful if you think about, like, whatever. You don't have to get into, like, the the actual constitutional arguments about the the basis for, for the American Civil War. But everyone, north, south, west, recognized that in the late 1860s and early 1870s, something had drastically changed. An enormous amount of money was being made. Enormous things were happening. We built a railroad across the continent, but everything was sort of looser and wilder than it had been. And a lot of the mythos of the Wild West was not actually true in Colorado or Nevada, but that level of violence was true in a lot of places. I've mentioned that before. I'll explain that sometime. Was true in eastern cities, nor- what we would now call the Northeast. They Gangs just in New York. Cities. Yeah. So what, what, what's going on is that the nation is now enormous and controlled by money rather than regional interests or identities in a way that it never had been before, just because the amount of national economic integration wasn't there until after the Civil War. So I think that if you want to say, okay, well, there's something new since the New Deal, I would accept that, right? But I think you have to recognize that at least since the Civil War, we are we are not the same. The Constitution yeah, also yeah. functions very I'm, differently, I'm just but we're that, not the same nation. That the national broadcasting channel that Eisenhower brought in, which there's been some chatter in the Discord on, I think there's really something to that, that television broadcasting in America began largely as a governmental endeavor and that it had a purpose uh, that was to show America itself, but again, as a nation founded, you know, with this very same regime that you have coming out of the Civil War, but now coming out of World War II, and also tied to some of these UN realities that are foreign interests, right? I mean, it's, it's what they are. They're significant foreign interests in our government. And yeah. so so the combining of that into, you said recently, how the United States, you know, what are we? You know, we're the best propagandists in the world, right? We, we tell stories best. Right. Certainly tying right. this to California as sort of like the, the backwoods beating heartbeat of America. Ew, but, but true. Um, and I'm <laughs> from there and the beaches aren't that bad. But like, okay, so th- there was a lot. I don't even know if I can finish the sentence. Controlled by money. Though, what do you mean yeah. by that? I mean, money is, I mean, you're talking about the dollar, you're talking about the economy, you're talking about mammon. 
Uh, what do you mean? Yeah, I'm talking about it's hard to explain the size and also the mobility, even today, even with some kind of vaccine passports and varying mask mandates to explain the mobility of the United States, the internal mobility over an entire continent. I mean, we really are pretty unusual. Canada, okay, sure, but like most of it is uninhabitable. You're talking about the current free movement then? What I'm saying is that the only parallel thing that exists to the United States is Russia. Right, right. Historically. And so the 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 size of movement over such an enormous market is novel for us, as it was for Russia in the late 19th century after the abolition of serfdom. Things change massively socially in both places, and suddenly lots of people can go practically anywhere, potentially. And so also lots of people come in. I mean, Germans immigrated to Russia, just like they did to the United States Midwest in, in enormous numbers. So what you're dealing with is a nation that is defined by markets rather than people groups or locations or anything like that. And if that was always sort of nascent in the United States and the frontier was always expanding, it kicked into high gear and was nationally unified from California to New York for the first time in a very easy way yeah. after after the Civil War. Yeah. And so things that develop after that, that further consolidate nationalization, homogenization, and the growth of markets of all kinds would include not just TV, which is put on hold technologically during World War II, and then they begin to grant new licenses after World War II. So that's why it coincides with Eisenhower. I mean, they could have tried it, but they devoted other, th other resources to right. other things in, in, during the war. But it's not just TV. It's not just movies before that. It's not just radio before that. It's also things like newspapers and nationally distributed publications, magazines, these things kind of normal as they are. And at this point, like passe or, or obsolete as they are. I mean, how many people read Reader's Digest at this point are all variations along. There's a national market for this, that, or the other thing. There's a national way to define opinion. There's a national way to change people's minds. These are all exercises of soft power so that they don't have to do to other parts of America what they did to the Confederate States, for instance. That was hard power, right? But that's extremely expensive. That's extremely time consuming. And you could lose. Soft power is much more effective if I change your mind when you're you know, six in school or change your mind about vaccines because I just bombard you with information about where to get them. And so you're like, oh, maybe I should get one. It's much more effective for dealing with people than hard power in its exercise. Do you want to talk about Jacobson versus Massachusetts, 1903? Yeah, because this is kind of this is something a lot of people don't know about. And um, what old court cases referenced by name and not everyone knows about all of yeah, them? Yeah, right. Exactly. They don't know. I mean, it's like, come on, like, you know, Roe v. Wade, like get some others, you know, like we didn't just get here through Roe v. Wade. Jacobson v. Massachusetts is an early very early 20th century Supreme Court case about a mandatory smallpox vaccination in the state of Massachusetts. Jacobson was, I mean, if I were trying to sell this politically, I'd say they were trying to vaccinate immigrants against their will. Jacobson was a Swedish immigrant. So not the right kind of immigrant, but I mean, close enough, right? Closer than I am. So he's an immigrant. He's a pastor. And he had been vaccinated as a younger man in Sweden, I believe against smallpox. And it had a, a horrendous reaction, almost died, right? Hmm, hmm. So you get 
uh, mandatory vaccinations in Massachusetts in you know this first decade of the 20th century, and he doesn't want it. Okay, he's a pastor actually in Cambridge, Massachusetts, of all places. So that's where Harvard is. And this goes up to the state court. They say, no, you're not going to win. So it goes up to the Supreme Court, right? And when it gets to the Supreme Court, interestingly, the grounds on which it was what was argued was that it violates, this is really important because this is like post-Civil War America. He doesn't say like this violates like, you know, my right to personal property or anything. This violates the 14th Amendment. That's a reconstruction Ooh. amendment about equal protection and of the laws. And so my conscience is being violated. And what the Supreme Court decided in a 7-2 majority, it's pretty decisive. They upheld the Massachusetts law. They said, you don't, your personal liberty has a limitation subject to the police power of the state. So if the state decides that you are a public health liability, this could be a big problem for you. And <laughs> Jacobson loses. Mm. So this, the, the reason that this came up or this came to my attention at all was because I saw it being cited and being discussed in terms of mask mandates and stay-at-home orders last year. Because what it says is when soft power, this is, this is where soft power runs out. I mean, soft power just doesn't... It, doesn't work on everybody, right? Not everybody's like, oh, I will do what I am told. Right? Yeah, some weirdos no. are like, we're going to start a podcast and talk about how we can like, yes. resist it. <laughs> some weirdos, right, yeah. And so so what do you do with people like that, right? Because because you can see, and you you may have heard if you have resisted any of this in any degree in any realm of your life, that you are a problem, okay? You are a problem. It could be that you don't like vaccines or you don't like you're transphobic or you're homophobic or you're white or whatever your problem is, what probably all those things you're evil, right? So what do we do if you're evil, but you're also not listening to us? You won't just like lie down and die. Well, then what we can do is we can say, you are the threat. Okay. You are the threat. And so you need to be dealt with as such because you present an obvious public danger. And so Jacobson v. Massachusetts is very much the public health equivalent of labeling Americans domestic terrorists or putting Americans on a no-fly list, or as we've done to people who, you know, hey, the Supreme Court decided that birthright citizenship was a thing. We killed people who weren't maybe particularly American in, in any sense, but had been born in the United States with drones in the Middle East, uh, where they were, you know, spending their time as Islamic militants, <laughs> you know. We can do these things to Americans when soft power reaches its limits and then hard power is necessary, okay? So Jacobson v. Massachusetts is obscure partly because the question of enforced vaccination has not come up, and you can see that they don't want it to come up, right? They're going to make it difficult to have certain kinds of jobs or to go certain kinds of places before they have to figure out how to force you to be inoculated, right? But when that does happen, they do have precedent inside the house. Okay, so watch this, right? Inside the house, of course, when there's a dispute about how the cards have been dealt, the guy whom the house employs, right, is going to come decide for the house. This is why even when you think about, oh, conservative judges and Trump's conservative judges, one of the problems you're dealing with is that the acceptance of judicial supremacy not only was not intended in the Constitution, 
It also was not recognized by the people who have thought about why our system was set up the way it was as any kind of ultimate principle, because obviously it's possible, according to the actual founders of the United States, that the judiciary could be wrong. <laughs> not only is it possible, it's possible to pack the judiciary. I mean, yes. it, since yeah, they left that it open, it's pretty evident they didn't expect it to be the end-all, peel. Right, right. The, the, the judicial supremacy is where, you know, I'm going to push metaphor again, but if we're going to go priestcraft, I mean, these are the high priests of the land. Um, they're the priest kings uh, and queen, uh, queens. Uh, but to get into them is to enter that kind of upper echelon of our our spiritual trust in the system. And you're, that's what you're pointing out is the, yeah. the conservative right. so-called is still conserving trust in a system of truth-telling, truth-judging kingdom uh, that is trying to not exercise its own power, that exercises its power in darkness, um, in right. closed doors. And, and the judiciary is just again, a great example of that, right? And you're lucky if you even get to go there and they're going to decide for the house anyway, as, as you point out. Yeah, and and when you when you think about it as the house, you realize that there are, you're just never going to win. So conservatives are effectively saying the house should take a slightly smaller cut, maybe please, Mister House, of your well-being. Okay, whereas you know the left, I guess, is very happy to take a bigger cut of your well-being. But either way, you lose. Like just mathematically betting against the house long-term for your whole life, you lose. So you just have to get in. I mean, life is risky. It is speculative. You need to get into a game that is outside the house, maybe where you're betting, you know, in a pool and the house is betting that this system is going to hold up and you know, it's not. So you are staking your life, your resources, your energy, your time on a different set of things than the options, the table games that the house has laid out for you. So give me a couple to start with. So one would be the idea of what an education is. Whenever, and one of the, one of the things I'll be talking about next week is I would like to produce, but you know, I'm not, I'm not, a, I mean, I, I, can, I can barely open the computer to record this podcast, right? So I'm not going to do this myself, but I'd like to have just sort of a composite index for, for states that didn't just grade them red and blue. We could take those things into account. But whenever I look at a state, I look first at gun laws and then at homeschooling laws. And a composite of that with maybe several other factors I'm sure the listeners can think of or would prefer, right, would give me a good sense of, am I able to move there and live like it's 1992, right? I'm not asking for perfection, okay? I'm not asking for, you know, for me, 1792 or something. I'm just asking for 1992. I just want to go about my daily life as I to some extent, recall it from that year. Okay. Like not a big deal. So when I look at that and homeschooling laws were actually worse than no question in almost every state, but you get what I'm saying. If I look at it that way, then I'm going to look at education in terms of what is possible for my children. Okay. Obviously I'm best qualified to train my children in life, which is really what we're training them for, not just to get a good job inside the casino. But what is, what is possible? Can I educate my children the way I want to? So if I'm going to send them to a school, what kinds of schools are actually possible there? How are those being regulated? Do they have to offer sacrifices to Aztec gods in those schools? These are all questions I'm asking because I want to know, is a life outside the casino possible? I know it's going to be risky. I just want to know if it's possible. 
so that's education. Another example would so be. So you're, you're still not yeah. sure it's possible. No, I know it's possible. Okay. I know it's possible this because where? where could be, I mean, is that the knows? problem or do you do your because, because what? I know it's possible because you're not alive in order to be a cog. If you were alive to be a cog, you would not be somebody who would have any sort of depth of feeling or thought. Okay. And if you're listening to this, you have some depth of feeling or thought you're still here, however far we are into the recording. Right. So you know that something else could happen. Okay. What you have to accept is that there's risk. It could be possible potentially anywhere. Right. I think probably a lot of things could be easy, more easily accomplished in different parts of the continental United States than others. That's, kind of obvious, legally, financially, et cetera. But, you know, who knows? Who knows what the future will bring? Because if you're dealing with a large amount of just dysfunction and decay, right, like a lot of government agencies, like, weren't really open for basic services in many states over the past year. You know, they're just kind of openly saying, like, we will draw our paychecks, but also you will get nothing, you know? (laughs) Um, if that's the case, then a lot of things are very, very fragile, okay? And in that case, right, if the house is quite fragile, um, quite fragile, it's attempting many kinds of impossibility across all kinds of realms of life. If that's the case, then what you need to do, the example I just gave was education. You could think of other things that you want to think about. What you need to do is consider what kinds of risk you would be taking on because you're not exactly going to war with the house, right? You're not trying to burn the house down the house. The house is going to commit arson itself, right? It's, it's already do. I mean, it's, it literally burned down many of its city centers last year. So, you know, it, it, it's taking care of that itself. You don't have to destroy the house. You don't have to burn it down or bomb it or something, but you're taking on risk in choosing a life not founded on its system, not, using its chips to assess your own value, not just solely trying to get enough comps, right? So again, then then that almost sounds like a new monetary system, which would be a federal crime, I believe. So we're not we're certainly not advocating that on on uh, on the show today, but how do you get outside their chips? You you're you're really suggesting the answer is perspective as much as anything, right? So it's not about leaving the dollar behind until you have to. But it's about understanding that the dollar is just one story and you need other stories. You know, and so in, in investing, this would just be diversification of your portfolio. But in education, th- this means uh, taking a fair assessment of your real surroundings. What are the survivability factors, long and short, and then putting into place the most needful things? Uh, I mean, that could be as simple as a, a couple gallons of water if you're living in an apartment in the city, just stocked up in the in the uh, above the fridge because you you never know where to start. You 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 mentioned a book last week that I did order; it hasn't come yet. It was the uh, so maybe you can say it again. It was the like prairie farm how to do it book but that was not the title the encyclopedia of how to do everything on a farm that was not the title either but it was like that do you remember that yeah encyclopedia of country living so that's a good place to start for some hands on things what about like someone who you know all they've ever done is type on a keyboard they're not going to go buy some like acrylics and start painting right now. Uh, so, so what should they do right they got to find something with their hands where's a good place for a guy to start exploring with his hands? I mean, it, it 
it, it really depends on what you're capable of. And not everybody is capable of the same thing. Some people have a lot more mechanical aptitude than others. And in addition to that, not everything in the future is going to be people working with their hands. That's never been true in human history. So one thing to think about is if you don't want to work with your hands or you can't work with your hands, you can think about some kind of something that seems really boring to you, like selling prefab things to a certain industry that's big in your region and get into a business like that. The issue here is really just a, a gradual adjustment to acceptance of new kinds of risk. And I don't just mean financial. I also mean sort of emotional, hmm. which, again, you're not really being trained or medicated to do. So you're, you've been oriented towards security, most likely. Right. Um, you have to reorient. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I'm getting at pliable skills in general and emotional risk is definitely or emotional risk in endurability, something like that, mm-hmm. is definitely a skill you want to develop in that. So, yeah. So, I mean, my emphasis on the hands has just been in my own experience. It's by discovering I had hands apart from a keyboard mm-hmm. uh, that really has unlocked my my mouth and my head a little bit to just explore further and other other avenues I never would have thought about. And so uh, maybe that's just me. You know, I missed that with my head in the video game too for too long. And so I needed to go back and pick that skill up. But but pliable skills that then can be, it's not so much like I want to be able to, to use my mouth for trade with my neighbor. It's that my goal is to be a valuable human to all the humans around me. And in the end, that tends to work out for your survival. If, if you have a skill set that is able to be shared, even if you aren't the nicest guy in the world, you know, they'll keep you in the town uh, and they'll even trade some food with you, you know, because they need you to do the thing you do. And figuring out what that is will involve, as you point out, giving up some of the securities of plug and play, of assuming that I graduate with a paper, I get paid, yeah, I'm good. And instead, taking the emotional risk of doing something you're not good at, uh, of talking to people that you're afraid of talking to, uh, of listening to a show that is by two crazy white guys who think you should be different than everybody else around you. <laughs> yeah. uh, not just on vaccines, right? Not just on vaccines, but most especially on, uh, well, how you ask the question when someone comes and says, here's a magic pill, take it. Here's the sales pitch for you to get rich tomorrow. Uh, Here's the way you can make your best life now that you're going to step back and say, you know, uh, define these terms a little bit. Give me some categories. Uh, Where is the authority that really teaches me the nature of these things? Those questions are, I mean, and that summary, I guess, is what I've been getting from you throughout not just this show, but through the show up to this point. That with the constant reminder, I don't think we say it enough, that it's a slow apocalypse. It's a slow apocalypse. Uh, That is so huge, right? Crisis is not what we're in. Not really. Not yet. Right. Right. Yeah. If it were were proceeding rapidly, an enormous number of things would be vastly different than they are and and a lot more horrible. I mean, this podcast probably wouldn't even really be necessary or would take on a totally different tone. I, I think that... I spend a lot of time doing diagnosis or trying to explain things historically because that makes it clearer what they are. But when things are bad enough, explanation is not nearly so necessary. I mean, prospecting, you know, or planning for the future is always necessary, but diagnosis of what's going wrong is not necessary when houses actually burn to the ground. Um, It might slowly be doing that. There might be smoke in one of the rooms upstairs, but right now the casino is uh, still operating. We would not be trying to convince the listener or help them convince others of our position if it were really coming down that fast. And you would be 
we wouldn't be telling you get to know your neighbors, figure out how to work together just in case there's an emergency because you'd be getting to know your neighbors because there's an emergency and you'd, you'd right. be dealing with it, right? Um, and so, so yeah, the slow apocalypse gives you time to educate yourself, to decide you're going to survive. That'd be another piece that's important for survival. Decide you're going to survive um, and then <laughs> take fair assessment you know, one day at a time. Right. And next week we're going to do red, red, and lots more redder, but no blue, and there's a pill involved, or not really? <laughs> no, I don't think there's a pill. I think um, what we're going to talk about is people say red states and blue states, but um, I think it's much more productive to think of them on a spectrum. And I'm going to look at the factors that cause it to be a spectrum instead of just a, like it's either red or it's blue, right? And so because the, the factors there vary widely by state, and it also has to do with the future, especially red states to which people seem to be fleeing, which are actually, I mean, even Montana gained a representative from the 2020 census <laughs> and California and New York and, you know, Pennsylvania and Illinois are losing. So why are they the way they are? Um, how blue are they? How red are they? And I, I think a lot of it has a lot more to do than just with like, how do they vote in a, in a you know, national presidential election? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Agreed. I really like your idea of the cross analysis of the states and maybe even localities, uh, local municipalities for uh, true religious freedom, true freedom of conscience. Uh, I think right. that's a, a laudable goal. I don't know how we get from here to there, but I think it's a it's the kind of future that we have to think in that the black or white either or of the global narrative that basically is, you know, pick your favorite enemy or the one that's his little brother and they'll just kind of fight for you. Uh, leaving that behind is the real leaving of the house, uh, leaving of the, that game. And so that's where I'm, I'm going to insist on the propaganda, the narrative. Uh, that is the thing that if you turn that off and just build from who's around you, real conversations, you'll still get plenty we get plenty from that outside nonsense, um, but it, it will it will diminish the white noise and and give you a chance to real exercise power in your own life. Uh, Brief history power to white guys. You know where to find us, or you wouldn't be here.